0: Hey dickheads, your pink laser beam of truth comes straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. Tonight we have a guest in studio, Cody Goodfellow. He is the author of several novels, including Radiant Dawn, Ravenous Dusk, Repo Shark, A Perfect Union, which is one of my top ten horror novels of all time. He has several short story collections out, including Rapture of the Deep, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, Strategies of Nature, and All Monster Action. Uh, Strategies of Nature and All Monster Action are great short story collections that you can get from Kingshot Press. And he has two new books out this summer, Un-America and Scum of the Earth. And we're going to talk about those books after we get into The Man of the Hour, Philip K. Dick. One of the reasons why I wanted to have Cody on here is he's one of the biggest dickheads I know. He's the reason why I read Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. So, here you go. Cody Goodfellow. Enjoy. dickheads we have a special guest in studio this pink laser beam of truth is entirely encased in san diego um so this is the first time we've had uh someone here in the studio and it's cody Goodfellow. he's an author from san diego but i've already done the introduction so welcome to the dickheads podcast cody
1: thanks dave it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here
0: all right, so we're going to start off talking about before we get into your uh, PKD history, how did you get into genre fiction and tell tell the people a little bit about where or uh, who you are and where you're from?
1: All right. Yeah, I know. Well, like you said twice, I'm a native San Diegan um, and I, uh uh Grew up in, uh, Hillcrest, not far from here, and Ocean Beach, and, uh, La Mesa, Santee, El Cajon, Lakeside. We've just been moving further and further away from the five. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, I got into genre fiction really early in life. I was fascinated by, by monsters and giving people bad news, and, um, uh, I, I think as a way to deal with turbulence in my childhood, um, that, that caused night terrors, I realized that I was watching monster movies and that contradictory to what my parents and cr- grandparents thought, the mon- monster movies weren't causing them the, the night terrors. The night terrors actually, once I realized that, that the night terrors were like bonus monster movies, they <laughs> right. stopped. They went away. And, um, and, and I kind of missed them. And, um, so ever since i've i've tried to uh find an outlet you know various outlets for that energy um i had a third grade teacher uh who when i complained about the reading material in the classroom gave me the uh, the shining to read and uh and then uh, night shift and the stand and um uh, yeah, I, I, I worked as a librarian at my junior high school at, uh, at O'Farrell, the school for the creative and performing arts. And, uh, so I had a, I had a hand in, uh, buying all of the books for the following year. And, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, by, by like seventh grade, I was stocking us up on, on Ellison and Dick and Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and all that good stuff. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I came to it pretty early. It's, uh, kind of defined, um, how I look at reality, unfortunately, how I also have tried to make a living. Um, <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a rewarding part of my life pretty much all my life. Okay. So one of the reasons why I've always, uh,
0: wanted to get you on this podcast and why I'm really excited you're here tonight is that you're one of the best and well-read people that I know in genre, uh of genre fiction. Uh, oh, you're a person that uh pretty much every time, except for maybe one time, uh that you've told me to read a book, um, I've loved it. And <laughs> um <laughs> and uh we can only talk- your
1: Patreon subscribers will find out what the one time was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh uh for the most part, uh you're known as being kind of a well, not kind of, you're an expert on Lovecraftian fiction. You write a lot of Lovecraftian fiction. Your first two books radiant dawn and ravenous dusk are epics of lovecraftian style fiction mm-hmm. but i've always known you to be just as much or maybe not quite as much but a very serious philip k dickhead and uh you know for for me you're the person that made sure that i read for example three Stegmata of palmer eldridge mm-hmm. because i had when i when we first started hanging out, I had mentioned that I read a lot of PKD, that I like PKD, and then you had asked me if I had read that one, and I hadn't.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I know Anthony had a similar experience with you, so we mm-hmm. always connect you with that book. But <laughs> we, uh, I've talked many times with you about Philip K. Dick, so what's your introduction to Philip K. Dick, and how did you get into uh, this author?
1: Into around, it, it was, you know, Part of the, the, the magical year that kind of made me in, in so many ways, uh, uh, or, or the summer, rather, 1982, mm-hmm. um, that was the summer that I uh, first found a book at a Scholastic Book Fair, a collection of Lovecraft stories. Um, And, uh, the year that the thing and, uh, Road Warrior and of course Blade Runner came out Mm. and we'd been dropped off at the theater, me and my cousins and their neighbors to see E.T. and it was sold out. So we went and saw Blade Runner instead without knowing.
0: Pretty much the same thing.
1: Sure. Sure. (laughs) Sure. It was, it was the Star Wars guy. Uh, and. And, and that was, that was my introduction to, uh, uh, to Dick's work. And of course it's, you know, it's, it, it's filtered through a lot of other things. Um, and so, you know, reading the book, um, just as a way of trying to get more of the movie, uh, at, at age 11 really blew my fucking mind at, at, at first. I, w- I was frustrated with it because it didn't cater to, it wasn't a sleek, you know, uh, noir, hard boiled noir thing. And, uh, you know, Roy Batty, uh, looked in my head, you know, more like a, you know, like Ned Beatty <laughs> than, right. than Rector Hauer, uh, you know, in a Luau shirt. And, 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 but but getting ahead around a lot of the, the things like the you know the uh the uh sorry spoiler alert the, the 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 unit of blade runners who don't realize that they're all that they're all replicants and mm-hmm. stuff like that that really added this layer of unreality that really made me consider for the first time um that you know how how fiction is a guided dream and so um you know, like, like a lot of people, I have this very healthy distaste for the, the conceit where somebody wakes up at the end of a story and, oh, it was all a dream. You know, mm-hmm. you, you want it to be reality, but that's because what you're reading is, is, you know, is a subversion of reality. It's a counterfeit of one. And so when it admits that it can be really frustrating. It's a Dick's ability to, uh, or his, his penchant, his obsession for, uh, playing with that plasticity of subjective reality, was um, really amazing. Uh, really, really touching to me. I wasn't really ready for it at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't read anything else by him until, uh, until I got to college <laughs> and acid. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I started experimenting with, uh, with LSD and mushrooms and meslin and, and actually see another, other, other uh, uh, other psychedelics, uh, around the same time that I picked up, uh, uh, Dick's work again. And, um, I tried to read everything pretty much in chronological sequence over, over like, uh, the next three years. And, um, it was a really unique, um, I mean, not to say problematic way to, uh, experience and absorb his, his stuff because I could feel this, um, even in his weirdest stuff could feel this real strong sense of connection that I because my brain at the time especially for some of his most uh psychedelic fried stuff and and he often insisted you know that you know, after Allison famously right yeah, ca- yeah. kept on well, yeah he wrote this story that while he was on acid you know it's uh a lot more likely he wrote it you know under under incipient psychosis from from taking from taking amphetamines you know to just right. to keep up. Um, which can be every bit as nightmarish, every bit as distorting, um, and unreal. And as somebody who, who spent, uh, I, 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 I took the, did the entire English major in one year at at UCLA, uh, 18 units, uh, you know, five term papers in in a week, uh, every quarter. Uh, and, and, and it took a lot of, a lot of speed of, of every kind I could get my hands on to get through that, um. And I developed this really chameleonic ability to absorb the, the writing properties of whatever, whoever I was writing an essay about. So, you know, my essay, my Milton essays were really Miltonic and, you know, my Browning essays were very brown. Um, but, (laughs) uh, but I, uh, I, uh, was reading Dick at the same time and could really, it, it really captured, uh, that sense of unreality that starts happening when you're, when you're playing with those things. And, all, and, you know, situations can generate that kind of a, that kind of a crisis. Um, but, you know, when you're experimenting with, uh, with drugs, of course, you're doing it because you're, you're thinking that you can control the set and setting and what's going to happen to you. Of course, that's, that's, that's an illusion. And, and, uh, it was, it was, it was wonderful, uh, to have him as a sort of guide. Uh, to, uh, uh, experiencing and dealing with ego death at a time when you're trying to, trying to figure out and plan out your whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, so I got a lot of resonance out of, uh, out of Dick's work, especially out of the, I mean, as you said, Three Stigmata of Palmer Aldrich is my, is my absolute runaway favorite because it's just, um, takes all of his, all of his concepts out to this, out to this insane surrealistic extreme. Um, and out to a vanishing point. And, um, but, but also his, his later more melancholic stuff when he was trying to really look for a, for a higher, uh, a meaning, you yeah. know, behind a lot of his things.
0: You know, what's really interesting is that I recently discovered through doing the research for Martian Timeslip that, mm-hmm. um, he wrote Three Stigmata before Martian Timeslip, mm. which, um, or at least a draft of it, and we know that Days of Perky Pat was way older, which is the the root, yeah, of, of Three Stigmata, right? And you know what's interesting to me when you read it in chronological order, as we're doing right now, because I had read certain PKD before, but um, obviously, like some of the big ones, like Valis and. Three Sigma and Scanner Darkly and all that, but a lot of the early works were ones that I read for the first time when I was purposely going through and reading them in order right. for this podcast. Right. And when you look at how he developed as as um, as an artist, and you look through like the whole, you know, when he's kind of coming together, there is definitely, for example, like Man in the High Castle is the first one where, or Time Out of Joint, Man in the High Castle are really the first two where he. You know where you could tell he wasn't trying to be a pulpster. He wasn't mm-hmm. writing for that one. He always talks about in a lot of his letters that he wrote for the audience of one and Don Wolheim, like Don Wolheim at Ace, was who he was mm-hmm. trying to please. And I'm wondering uh, between the from the pulp stuff to the more serious of the PKD stuff, do do you find yourself gravitating to one or or more or, or which two? forms of the, kind of the PKD Oeuvre are are more, are you more into or is it a blending of both?
1: Well, I liked, I liked the psychedelic stuff at its height right before it kind of crashed. Uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of broken brain, uh, ones like game players of Titan and, um, uh, um, galactic pot healer, um, where he's, he's, Playing with these, these forms. Those are the ones that were the most, most fascinating to me now as a, as, as a writer, as a reader. Um, and I have, I have only, the only one, couple that I've revisited lately are Counterclock World and, um, and, and Flow My Tears, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the last few years. I mean, as I said, I read everything, including the non-genre stuff, um, in the, uh, between, between 89 and 93. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I really liked, uh, that the latter stuff, um, I, I, it's weird. I, I feel like the, uh, you know, his non-genre stuff like the girl in the bubble or the man whose teeth were all exactly alike. They're, they're fascinating as almost, you know, journal pieces as because they're, they're very thinly, uh very thinly fictionalized autobiographical things and just really trying to get a lot of psychological baggage out of his own head, um, which I've come to relate to at a really tragic level. But uh <laughs> um I uh I want I the ones I really want to revisit are like the uh are are the earlier sci-fi ones and, and, and the short short ones. I burned through you know the the whole Citadel Twilight uh, uh, omnibus collection of the, of, of his hmm. fiction back then too. And, and there are a few of them that, that really, uh, kind of punched a hole in me or left a hook, but, but in the sense that, you know, a really telling fortune cookie could, you know, you remember so little. You, you know, when you revisit a favorite film or something and you, and you realize, wow, I, I, or not a favorite film, but a film that you really liked but haven't seen in, in ages, you, you, It's amazing how little of it you actually do remember Mm -hmm. uh, until you see it again. And so, you know, those things that, that do stick in your memory are really, really telling, uh, the, the, the story about the, the, the man who finds the, you know, uh, goes to the doctor and he realizes that that he has that ticker tape running through his chest and and by punching it, he can cause different experiences to happen. it's a, Beautiful thing because it distills down, you know, everything love that that, that Dick was attacking in uh, in his whole thing in in this one beautiful metaphor. Um, that so this, sorry. Citadel Twilight
0: um, Volume Two was my gateway drug because after mm-hmm. Total Recall, right? That was for me where, and, and I still have that copy. We're still using it. It's all marked up for the podcast now, but. Um,
1: how amazing was that? That that, that you know when you, you you go back and and read read that one. And I remember that the, the mm-hmm. after Total Recall came out, and I couldn't find a uh, a a, a, co- a collection with uh, we can remember it for you wholesale uh out and 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 that it came out after the book, and so it had a big sticker on it. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. From
0: from the, the, for Total Recall, yeah. And it's
1: and it, how amazing that 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 story it, it, it overruns the movie in like ten pages, <laughs> right? You right. know.
0: Yeah, well, and you know when we did our episode on Total Recall, and and you know a lot of that story, and a lot of those early stories are just basically punchlines, but they're delivered so well that um, you know with a short period of time, PKD was able to do so much, and it's really cool to see how these little paranoid nuggets, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, yeah, um, turn into these uh, weird action movies with varying levels of success or not success in the case of Imposter and Paycheck, but uh, we've already done episodes on those, so I don't want to Dave, on. did you know,
1: speaking of paranoid nuggets, uh, Patricia Allen, the actress who plays uh, the uh, woman that Arnold Schwarzenegger attempts to sneak sneak past Martian customs disguised as, uh, was a uh, theater and tech and drama teacher over at uh, O'Farrell School of Creative and Performing Arts. Yep. Yeah, Mary yeah.
0: knows he's worked with her too. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You,
1: so. you knew Patricia Allen. I, I had, her, I had her, for theater tech in seventh grade. Well, I, <laughs> uh, no, I didn't work with her personally, but I had friends. Yeah. You know that were that took classes just like you. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, she was great. She had like five <laughs> five daughters, I think, all of whom were going into theater. So. <laughs> right. I'm amazed they're not all famous. Yeah. Anyway,
0: I think we did talk about that San Diego connection in the episode. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the uh, the funny thing about the the early days too and the pulpy science fiction stuff is right. that you know with varying degrees of success we actually found ourselves it was funny because everyone talks about Vulcan's Hammer as being his worst book right Good. and we we all kind of liked Vulcan's Hammer to a degree right it was kind of a contrary opinion and the one we hated was Cosmic Puppets we all hated Cosmic Puppets mm-hmm. and like that's the one book that none of us liked. Right. But, to a degree, there was still stuff that we could get out of it, and it's really interesting to see, even in the early days, with books like The World Jones Made and The Man Who Japed*. that... Did you hate them in
1: the context of the other dick books, or in the context of what was contemporaneous at the time? Because...
0: No, no, and listen, I'm the one that, of, of all of us, I'm the one that constantly tries to remind people to, to think of it for the time that it sure, was. Sure, sure. And with... Uh,
1: and that stage in his development, or what he was trying to do, because there's, there's cool stuff almost happening in it. You can, it's one of those ones where it almost, almost right. bubbles through, I mean... Yeah, but they do drive through giant boobs at the end. Yeah. They do drive through giant boobs at the end, which is just
0: kind of weird. And? <laughs> right, well... If it works for Cody, as, I, you know, well, that's great.
1: The, the the thing is, the thing is I think it's a uh it leads to really dry ultimately unsatisfying and unmemorable fiction if you always let your forebrain guide you to a logical path for what should happen in a story. If you mm-hmm. if if the author at no level just lets their id take control of the story. <laughs> well, he definitely did on the last page. Cuz that's that where movie. that's those are the, the, the that's what creates the moments that stick with you. Cuz yeah. cuz yeah, it probably blanked out, retroactively blanked out everything that happened before that, they drive through boobs. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, think of what, what you're, what's going to stick in your mind in that baby. Is uh, the, yeah. Well,
0: it is good to hear another opinion because right. we definitely, I know Evan Lampy, who's, who's another scholar of PKD, he really right. loves cosmic puppets and, you I know... I like just, that one. I, I
1: would need to go back and revisit, but I don't remember getting, like, a bad taste from it. Uh... I mean, solar lottery. It is our is, most downloaded
0: is, episode, too. Yeah, yeah, is, the one we didn't
1: like. <laughs> aw, everybody loves a hater.
0: Well, but um, and we did, you know. You know, the thing about cosmic puppets is it was one that we had the the least amount of stuff that we found to enjoy um, out of it. I mean, even like Doctor Futurity, which you know we called Doctor White Savior, and um, you know because it. Or Dr. Future Guy, a lot of it, you know, and we had like there was a lot of problems we had with that book, but we really liked, for example, that Dick was exploring the effects of history over time in, in that mm-hmm. book. And so yeah. I could I could overlook a lot of those things. But for me, with Cosmic Puppets, outside of the fact that it was like a Twilight Zone episode, it was like a big Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. And I kinda liked that aspect of it and I did get talked down off the ledge on Cosmic Puppets, because I think I kind of defended it more early in the episode, and then yeah, kind of got talked down on it. But it is interesting to hear your opinion on
1: that, but... Uh, I think I find I I am less excited, I mean, retroactively, the ones I was thinking I would like the most were probably the ones that, that I don't want to say disappointed, but like mm-hmm. The first time I read Man in the High Castle, I was expecting this is going to be like, like psychedelic mission impossible every day. And it, you know, it's about an antique dealer. What's this? <laughs> What's this fortune cookie crap it was it was not it 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 didn't I would need to go back and look at it and it's funny i, I haven't I haven't watched much of the t v show but the t v show seems to be that dumb college age college age uh, acid heads idea of what uh of what should have been in there right um I just finished season two, so and it it is kind of like that but <laughs> um. <laughs> but 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 yeah, and like and like you know i i think flow my tears the policeman said is it that's one where he suddenly the, the policeman is at the head of that authoritarian thing suddenly has to you know not be able to go a block through things. I didn't think I was going to like that one, but that one really really stuck with me. Or uh, um, uh, a uh, Scanner Darkly, which that was the one I was kind of dreading because that was right around when I was finishing college and going, okay, you're going to stop doing all these drugs, and, uh, and and reading this just this nightmarish drug dread book uh uh, uh really made me you know. Think, think twice about uh, uh, about whether that was uh, it was it it was it was a good way to to, uh, broaden and add more more facets to my perception of reality, but probably not a good modus operandi as a creative, right? Um, (laughs) Well, but so yeah, a lot of the lessons aren't the things that you're, you're. Really thinking you're going to like or You, you take them. I, I've taken some of the best lessons from the books that I, I probably thought I was going to enjoy the least. Right. Well, and *Man in the High Castle* we had the
0: experience of. Well, Anthony was sitting in that chair you're sitting in. I was bored what? the whole time, and uh, I. That was my third time reading *Man in the High Castle*, and it was my favorite time reading it because because I had the the <laughs> because I had the well. So you yeah, had that off part-
1: function key because that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> I was bored. I was bored, yeah. (laughs) So, it's like he is still here. Um, But, uh... (laughs) The alright. Yeah, I know. We love you, man.
0: We love you, Anthony. But, uh, when I read Man in the High Castle for the third time, because I was reading it in the context of the podcast, you know, the whole... I don't think the level of how... Because the book is about the questioning of... We've, we've always known that PKD wrote about what is reality, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. for him to do it in a historical context, to say, is history reality, sure. and can you not trust any of it, gave it a totally different spin that I didn't catch the first two times I read it. And I'm sure when you're looking for that Mission Impossible, like, yeah. history thing, and instead you get this other thing
1: that I could see why it'd be disappointing, but... Well, it wasn't you know. that I was... I mean, I was... It was, it wasn't so much as a sense dis- of disappointment as dislocation is mm-hmm. when you're, when you, I mean, because it, it, it's funny because Dick, for one of, of another market that could figure out and he, he could even deal with him. Never mind, mm-hmm. figure out how to market him. Uh, he was working in pulp and pulp offers surprise exactly as you want it. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> uh, it, it, it doesn't do well with giving you something that's really truly qualitatively unexpected just quantitatively unexpected you know killer (laughs) killer killer snapping turtles but how many killer snapping turtles um and 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 so uh it it was it was it was weird how that would how that would happen i mean i would i would liken it most to um or liken it best to something else that was uh that kept me on my toes during the same period, uh, was listening to the music of Coil because every time you'd get a Coil release, you'd know that they would go all in and go to these extremities of, of, uh, of, of mental, uh, self-abuse to, to, to make this music. And it could be really amazing and fascinating and it could be total ass. And you had no idea what was going to happen with the next, with the next thing. And that's a, uh, uh, that's a corporate marketer's night, worst nightmare, but that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm most drawn to. And, uh, yeah, he, he had a kind of a proclivity for doing that. That you, you're a lot of times looking at the cover of the book was a couple, couple of well-meaning science fiction fans best guess at <laughs> what the hell was going on inside. You know, Cosmic Puppets was kind of one of those.
0: Yeah. Well hey, I've got a question I'm really excited to ask because oh. But I gotta explain a little bit about uh sitting across the table from each other, we could not be two very different people in one way. Um we've been friends for seventeen years, but we look at the world in very different ways. I'm straight edge. I don't do any drugs, drink, smoke, any of that. What and, yeah. And uh so I read PKD as a sober person, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your experience reading in college is one that um is really interesting to me because, as a creator, we know PKD was doing probably more drugs than he was willing to admit. After Harlan Ellison outed him on the international stage in the in Dangerous Visions, mm-hmm. uh, which was a pretty dick move for uh, um, asshole move, I should say in this context yeah. for Ellison. But um, how, like, tell me about that experience because I I'm coming at it as a sober person, so we. We look at it as very different, but I'm now having the experience of doing this, not only as an adult, but still as the sober person, like, reading it through. Like, like, how was that
1: different? I, I don't know. I mean... Well, I mean, there... I mean, there's probably... It, it's funny... What's funniest about it is how many authors we have in common that we both like who are total heads, or at least were total heads. I mean, John Shirley. That was one of the things that I really loved about Shirley was that Shirley was able to write, like, hard-boiled crime and pulp and stuff, but through this total fucking psychedelic punk surreal lens. And mesmerizing
0: Um, shit, too.
1: Yeah. And there's and there's there's moments and metaphors that he uses that totally would make me go yes that right there I I've, I've seen him too yeah. <laughs> you know I've seen the belladonna witch I know what you're talking about the man angel
0: with television eyes and the mirror face guy like yeah. I just finished that book so. yeah
1: the machine yeah. elves I mean there's 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 things that <laughs> You, the i mean some of the without getting into the just yeah no man i had this one trip winter midterms you know <laughs> it really changed everything i mean to try to give a thumbnail description of what i think psychedelics did for me that i that you may have had an analog from reading dick's fiction or other experiences in life mm-hmm. watching burning man on tv i don't know but uh <laughs> uh is is you know, aside from, I mean, the obvious one is the nature of just the, how deeply subjective reality is and how much of our brain's processes, uh, that we think we're aware of are just kind of running on autopilot and how, how much we filter out of what's going on in order to perceive what we need to or what we want to or what we're, you know, what we're beating ourselves up with. But, uh, also, I mean, the, the, the mechanistic and kind of deterministic nature of so much of the brain and what is and what isn't. Um, you know, I became really fascinated with near death experiences and, and, uh, researching about the, the, this neuropsychiatrist who had figured out how to induce electrical seizures in the temporal lobe and cause people to sit, to, you know, see heaven and hell and get abducted by UFOs while lying on his couch. And, um, that seemed almost like that guy had figured out how to pull the ticker tape out of people's chests and he was just punching holes in it willy nilly and, 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 and getting things to happen. And, um, there were experiences that I had that really showed me or gave me a sense of how my perception of the world was different from other lives and other things and, and also the interconnectedness of everything at an energy level at a biological level at a chemical level and all of those all of those things you i i've see had experiences where I saw those matrices and saw those things and it really did in i mean it didn't make me stop wanting eating cheeseburgers but <laughs> but I've seen how the oceans interconnected and how pigs are really us and all all of that stuff you know um in in uh, in a lot of, in a lot of really pleasant and ecstatic and wonderful ways, but also in really terrible ways. Um, one thing that uh, I learned, I think, from reading Dick and maybe talking to a couple of other people, was how to weather really horrible trips where you're convinced that you're going to die or the universe is coming unstitched. And everything's going to die, or reality itself is going to grind to a halt, and uh feeling like that's going to happen, and then being able to step outside and go, "Okay, this is fascinating that you're convinced that this is happening <laughs> why Where did you get this idea from mm-hmm. and and then and, and then it leads to a story and it and, it, and it's and it's it's kind of like that that ability of like droopy or woody woodpecker to step out of a falling elevator right before the moment when it impacts and mm-hmm. completely set oneself free of that inertia
0: um now it's been a while since i read three stigmata but um recently having read Martian time slip and i think this i i know part of it's a very subtle thing in Martian time slip but i believe it's more part of three stigmata is this in Martian Times so there's this idea that the colonists that because they're living in such a harsh situation on Mars that the drugs that they're doing is 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 part of how they deal with this kind of like harsh reality. And I, I'm I've always kind of wondered how like, you know, Dick dealt with drugs publicly in the early novels versus mm-hmm. how he did when, when he kind of came around in, and Scanner Darkly, I wonder if you have any thoughts about how
1: Dick wrote about drugs. Oh, sure. Drugs. Well, like, you look at like how, um, uh, candy works in, in Three Stigmata, of Palmer, Eldritch. And again, I'm drawing off having read it a long time ago too. It's such a, it's such a, Druggy notion to think of. It, it, it's totally the kind of thing that you'd think of the first time you really have a transformative trip is, is this could set everybody free. You don't need anything else. You're so, I mean, all of a sudden advertising doesn't work on you. It you can just see how you can see how stupid the appeal is of what they're trying to sell you, and you realize you, you suddenly recognize what your your subconscious levers are, and you can see other people groping for them with boxing gloves on. You know that they can't touch you anymore, and so you ask yourself, well, how would they get in there and commercialize this? How would they? F- how would they fuck this up so that that it's no longer liberating or no longer can give you uh freedom and it's well yeah if you had to buy a set of toys and weird junk to go along with it to accessorize your trip so that you could project yourself into Barbie and I can kind of understand that because nothing would be worse than being well I don't know I mean there are times when I thought all I really needed was a a uh, big blotter of acid, a steady supply of weed and coffee and, uh, and, and decent, a decent music library and books. Uh, see, I wanted this in the nineties, long before Amazon or iTunes existed. Otherwise, you'd never, you people would never know my name or see my face. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So there's two distinct phases of, um, PKD. I think when he was in the, kind of question reality phase, and then right. there's the Gnostic religion-like sure. phase. And we haven't really talked much about that. How,
1: I, the Valles phase, yeah. yeah. No, how, re- do
0: you, how do you feel about that era of PKD? It's it's
1: fascinating and kind of tragic and kind of uh, amazing. I mean, I've heard, I've been lucky enough to hear um, James Blaylock and Tim Powers both talk about uh, that time when they would, uh, when they were, he was kind of mentoring them. And that was how I discovered both of their work. And I was, uh, although neither of those guys really are, are, are heads uh or, or come across like the, maybe, you know, uh, way back in the day, but it's, it doesn't really colored their reality. And yet, there's like this kernel of an almost psychedelic, almost a surreal Dolly-esque glistening to some of their imagery and some of the ways that they approach things that 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 feels like him shining through as a teacher, not mm-hmm. as a, you know, not as a psychedelic influencer, but yeah, I remember Tim Powers talking once about, uh, about Dick and how he, uh, he- he remembers being called over to his house when he was in he was in high dudgeon, just in on a total manic tear, and 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 Dick answered the door and told him, "I've just discovered this secret that only ten men throughout history have known, and each of them was murdered. The last was Socrates, and now I'm about to share it with you." Yeah, and you he, Powers told us this story. Right. He said, "Okay." He yeah. said
0: that Dick asked him, "Do you want to know it?" And right. He said no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to know it. Don't, know. Don't it. <laughs> you know, which is really hilarious. But yeah, that phase is is, is definitely we haven't gotten there yet. So well, I, I'm trying not to think a ton about it because I kind of want to get there organically. But well, yeah, I mean, I'm not as i I'm I mean, I've read Ballas back in the day, but right,
1: you know. yeah, I read read them all back in the day and read his biography back in the day, but I haven't. I'm not a, a, a total train spotter, and so I hate presume beyond just what I feel empathically as a reader but in my own experience um, you know what you do generally becomes what you are by the time you harden into what we 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 flatter people calling it middle age but you know after 50 you're old especially if you're if you're burning the candle at both ends like he was or mm-hmm. or if you're if you're somebody who's done hard labor all their lives your body's you, your body's kind of shot and the rest of your life even if you have a quiet retirement you're you're going to be dealing with those 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 pains and those shocks and a lot of people when they come up first come up against their mortality they they either repudiate what they've been doing all through their young lives or they or they embrace it and they double down and i think he had written all of these trippy pulp stories and he had tried to imbue them with a higher level of of meaning and 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 uh, and a philosophy while he was still kind of feeling that out but, uh, you know, he was happiest just DJing at a fucking classical radio station. <laughs> that was, right. you know, that was, that. that's naturally a thing. It, that's something I can totally, totally relate to. Um, but he, uh, I think when he pivoted from writing about and speculating about these things to really believing it and then, I don't know. I mean, I was a big time conspiracy theory nut when I was a kid, just because it was exciting. But and so reading about how you know somebody broke into his apartment, and there were muddy government boot prints all over all over the place, and they stole his manuscript. And that was how he knew he's onto the truth.
0: It was actually <laughs> it's like, "Penultimate Truth" is the one that he blames the FBI <laughs> for. Uh, and I know this is because I just finished reading and researching "Penultimate Truth" for the next episode. So. Yeah, that's the one he believes was the one that got him onto him, the one with the Lettys and the, and the Yancey and all that. Um, so before we transition to talking about your work. Right. Um, which we're going to do really soon. And this is something I that so. I asked, uh, um, Evenson when he was on. Right. Um, but, uh, what are, dick adjacent, dick like authors? Do you think, because a lot of the people that are listening to this, they may be into PKD, but not, very many. Other, I know there's some people that just like PKD as far as mm-hmm. science fiction, or that it's their gateway to science fiction. So, and I know one of the answers you're going to have, but <laughs> but w- maybe just like uh, five authors, lightning round that that uh, you think people should check out if they're into PKD.
1: Norman Spenrod. Um Who
0: are we working on getting on the podcast?
1: Thomas Dish. Hmm. Uh, mm? Um, uh, and, um, J.G. Ballard. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, Ted Sturgeon, Mm -hmm. if if you guys haven't read any any Ted Sturgeon, and, uh, A.E. Van Vogt.
0: Uh, yeah, we're actually working, we're gonna be doing a whole, uh, bonus episode on the, um, on Null-A, because, uh, that is... PKD's biggest influence was, was no So we're going to be doing both.
1: Fantastic. So,
0: yeah. Spin red was the one I predicted, um, <laughs> but uh, we are working on spin red. Um, uh, some of those authors are not with us anymore. So yeah, we, uh,
1: I when, when, when Skip and I were in New York for world horror in 2005, we hung out with, um, with Leslie and Adam Sternberg and, um, uh, Leslie was the first mad lady, mad, uh, cartoonist, uh, 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 to draw for Mad Magazine. And she drew that, that picture right. of Skip and Spectre both pushing each other into a beat grinder. And she gave us kind of a whirlwind tour of Greenwich Village. And she pointed once at this very forbidding building and went, that's where Norman Spinrod lives. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't come down often. <laughs>
0: Well, now he's in France, right? So the timing is going to be interesting. But uh, I have traded a few messages with him, so I'm hoping to get him on soon. Wonderful, so wonderful. We did a bonus episode on the Journal of the Play Years, which is coming soon. So, Super um, good. but yeah, we we definitely like Spinrad around here. So um, yeah, we definitely agree with that. Uh, Evanson was really uh, his big suggestion was Cordwainer Smith, who I haven't oh. read. Oh, I'm going too soon. Oh god. Um, but uh, uh, Thomas
1: blindingly smart. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: I'm gonna add Thomas Dish to my list because I have not read Thomas Dish, yeah. which is surprising. Um, I like to think of myself as pretty well read. Yeah, and Thomas Smith,
1: Smith was, uh, uh, Dish was another one that, that he did, he did a, a lot of these very, uh, deceptively deep pulp sci fi books like Camp Concentration and, um, uh, the, uh, oh, for the love of God. Um, but he, he, he then pivoted and kind of reinvented himself in the early 90s as a, as a, a big tech, high-concept thriller writer. Did, like, the MD, and the lawyer. Yeah. And
0: Didn't he write the – he wrote, an, under his real name, he wrote the Journal of Psychological Warfare or something like that like mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. U.S. Army. Yeah. Which is really weird. Um, I do have some of his books on the shelf now. I just haven't gotten to them. But, um, but I am working on that. And so last thing before we get to your right. work, um, lightning round um, – Five most essential Philip K Dick books off the top of your head.
1: Um Clemson Alphane Moon. Um uh Three Stigmata, of Palmer Eldritch, um I I really think do Androids Dream of, of Electric Sheep, uh Scanner Darkly, and I'm looking for a cheat sheet <laughs> I'm like No, 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 no. Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky. Yeah, good. That's on mine, too. Also, Uh, my favorite Alan Parsons Project album. (laughs) Sorry.
0: All right, so now on to Cody as an author. Um, So, uh, Cody, you've been um, writing fiction. Uh, Your first published novel was 99 or was it 2000? It was
1: released only in 2000. Okay. Yeah.
0: And that is part of your Lovecraftian... Um, duology, it's, uh, Radiant Dawn, Ravenous Dusk. Yeah. They're, um, I still think they hold up, uh, really Thanks. well. They're, uh, favorites of mine and they made me an instant fan. Right. I first heard of you through Cemetery Dance mm-hmm. and it said that you had an address in San Diego. So I called you up and, uh, we've been friends ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciate, um, you know, throughout your career, um, you've, You've written various styles of horror, weird, whatever, but um, I think you're known for writing Lovecraftian fiction, but I think that even in some of your horror, like A Perfect Union, there is the kind of an un- otherworldly unre- unreality of it. And sure. so I really hope that for those of you who are dickheads, you've been listening to this, you can see clearly he's obviously influenced by PKD, so please check out his workbook. Today, mm-hmm. we're going to focus on. Your two most recent um, books that are mm-hmm. coming out soon, yeah, um, Scum of the Earth and Un-America. So I'm going to start with Scum of the Earth. Um, and I've just recently read both of them. And uh, it's not a shock to me, but I, I really love both. But on page nice. 65 of uh, Scum of the Earth... I noticed that uh, you actually name drop z and Candy, yeah, right, right in there. So yeah. um, that was pretty exciting to me. What um, influence did Philip K. Dick have on this book? And can you tell people what it's about?
1: All right. Well, uh, Scum of the Earth is my kind of my take on the, if not a parody of. Uh, kind of that golden age uh atomic age uh pulp science fiction um but also the um the like there was this wave of sleazy parodies of golden age science fiction that came out post star wars like uh uh, Galaxina, Ice Pirates, and some of them were lighter PG fare. Some of them were promising to be like Cheech and Chong in outer space. Like
0: Buckaroo Banzai, too. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: There were. Yeah. From that. From that same era and that totally that that same aesthetic. Um, and I wanted to to do something kind of in that in that vein. If I was gonna do like a, a an Eraserhead book, and I mean. Obviously, this this book was a lot is a lot slimmer and more uh, more focused than uh, any of my previous things. It also, as it happened, I, I wrote it in, using a totally different process. I was in a deep crisis. I was uh, in the process of moving from Portland back down to San Diego last summer, and I went on a writer's retreat uh, with uh, uh, Carlton and Rose out to the coast. And, uh, everything in my life, uh, for like the third time in two years had been thrown completely, uh, up into the air and I didn't know where I was going to be living or what I was going to be doing or anything. And so I, I just attacked the book, uh, in, uh, in a crisis and turning all of my anxiety about all of those things in, into the story. And I've... I mean that's been a part of my process uh all the time. I mean Repo Shark is what it is because of uh uh going to Hawaii year in and year out, the most beautiful place in the world and having a really shitty time. So uh uh it it was it, it And people should know it's a really
0: fun and funny book, so yeah. it's funny to me that you're going through a crisis cuz it is is pretty hilarious,
1: and and so yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, I wrote half the book in a week uh, on this writer's retreat, and then I moved. I, I put all my shit in boxes uh, and put it in a truck and drove back down here, and uh, I and I wrote the the rest of it in a week just to to kind of get over it. And it it was very much of a psychological safety net. I, it allowed me to step out of this borderline hysterical place that I was in, um, and and get a hold of my life. Um, and it,, uh, yeah, it, it is it, I mean in in rereading it afterwards, it it is remarkable to me how I was able to, uh, get as as many as many jokes and gags and things that I, I kind of don't remember having come up with. And so it's right. it, it is it is really a, a powerful and poignant personal testament to the ability of the brain to distract itself when it's falling apart.
0: Now this book, it's funny because we often I could easily see this book being like Dosey Doe on an Ace Double with mm-hmm. a Lee Bracket book or mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, and I, I think that's obviously what you were going for, but at the same time, um it it doesn't mock that era as much as it just playfully has fun with because for those you and I are both people who like to read old sci fi and hate sci fi. Yeah. And so, like, I really enjoyed reading something that felt like it was, like, farted out of the 60s, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, but here's the funny thing. So there's all kinds of really, like, I mean, the whole story is basically about, um, the Earth has been destroyed, but people are kind of, like, I might be remembering this wrong, but... Basically, using human brains like a drug, basically, or harvesting them, or am I remembering this? Part? Well,
1: aliens have been using using humans for a variety of purposes uh, mm-hmm. over the over the centuries, and and so um, there's a there's a, a breakthrough in a, a, an accidental breakthrough in technology whereby this uh, one alien race discovers that if you freeze human brains uh you can you can get like a snapshot out of their uh out of their brains in this one very poignant uh accidental snapshot from the brain of a of a tourist who was uh traveling between earth and mars uh it ends up going viral uh throughout the universe and uh the aliens become addicted to it because uh, but at the same time uh are are very uh Uh, condemnatory of, uh, of human beings. And it was, it was kind of riffing on that notion of how, uh, you know, counterculture is generated by the oppressed class. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, and so, uh, just messing with the economy of scale of making all of humanity into not just an oppressed class, but really by the standards of the rest of the, the rest of the civilized universe, you know, uh, a, a food crop and potentially a dangerous one because if our brains are, have this potential for distracting entertainment because of this, uh, uh, I, what I speculate, it, you know how, this was one thing that I did genuinely dislike about a lot of, uh, a lot of science fiction is how uh, so often in a lot of authors books, we go to the stars and we meet aliens and we discover that we're the coolest that, you know, and, and, and aliens follow all over themselves and, and say, you know, we're going to follow you even though, though you're you're a naive warlike bo- genocidal racist misogynist uh uh god-bothering species uh you're the you're the measure you're the yardstick that we've been looking for and and that kind of thing and or or they are they always compliment us uh, using aliens as as another to, uh to compliment us on our on our our ineffably amazing traits and so the the ineffably amazing trait that makes uh, the human The human brains, at least, uh, such a desirable uh, commodity is our ability to lie to ourselves. Uh, whether it's because we have a, 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 bicameral, you know, two hemisphere brain or, or just because we're, our, our ability to model things, we're able to model scenarios and then backwards patch those over what actually happened. And, and, and that makes our brains not just a, a, a generator of some really fantastic street drugs, but also, uh, if somebody could use, could create a, uh, use the brain as the, like the, the lens in a holographic generator, you could, you could create these infinite bubble realities where, where aliens could go rampaging through, through your, through your memories and imagination. And, um, and see
0: and, what I'm talking about. Dickheads? Yeah. 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 Exactly. And, and, so that's the thing, dude, is that this book is super pulpy in a lot of ways. I mean, the main, that the lead pirate is an ex stripper named, um Callistochrome. Right. Yeah. And you've got fart jokes and drug jokes and dick jokes, but you also have like these really interesting, like on um I'm, everyone's used to me reading parts, and I'm not going to read your book to you. But on page 46 there's this really interesting digression about how the human brain works and just basically the stuff you were just talking about. You know, and what I love is the balance because there's this really intelligent commentary on on um on how the brain works and and who we are as a species and fart jokes yeah so so which is like to me that's pure distilled cody goodfellow because as somebody who's read all your work um you know that's one of the things that i've come to appreciate is that um you can have, you definitely will balance that, and dickheads should really enjoy that because one of the things that gets overlooked often, and we talked about this with Evanson, is how hilarious Philip yeah. K. Dick
1: is. Yeah. And how funny his books are, yeah. and people forget that. Jim Jam the News Clown. He's yeah. Fucking stone cast, man. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, the man who japed is a fucking comedy. Yeah. Like almost from beginning to end, the world Jones made is very fucking funny. Fans, um, fans, have... Eye a- in the sky is fucking hilarious. Yeah, fans,
1: yeah. fans have a tendency to overlook sense of humor when they put a guy up on a pedestal. Right, so. and so one of the things. So getting back to
0: Scum of the Earth, like mm-hmm. uh, I laughed throughout this book. So, right on. Um, but I, I, it's not lost on me that. Um, that there are levels that are working in this book that are going to go over some people's heads when they read it, and um, because, oh, I hope so. Yeah, well, yeah. It,
1: it it does. I mean, there it does do stuff with with layered and synthesized reality, and uh, with the the uh, gray areas between between drug and entertainment experiences, and and reality, and religions, and and and, and stuff like that. But in a very yeah. Using that as a as a veneer, um, yeah. I mean, I wasn't, uh, writing it with even the expectation, even the slim expectation of an, uh, of a lame advance that, uh, that Dick wrote, wrote those kind of things. But, yeah. uh, companies you know, like, like Eraserhead Press are sort of those, those fly by night, uh, uh, paperback original pulp guys of, uh, uh of this era. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I wanted to write something that, that, that repaid that, but also, also took it forward. Uh, when I try to, when I try to pay back my influences, um, one thing I really try to do is, is rather than just go back and do something that could be mistaken for being from that era or do something that just name tra- checks that era. I try to do something that, that conveys my excitement for it. Um, when I wrote radiant dawn and ravenous dusk, I wasn't going to write something that, that, did that use Lovecraft's style or structure, um, or his lack of interest in human beings, especially women and people of color. But I know, uh No, and I'm uh, sure but,
0: there are many people who read yeah. Ravenous Dusk and Radiant Dawn and were like, what's so Lovecraftian about it? Um, well, but the people who know, right. who are really it's, g- smart about his st- work, they see it.
1: Yeah, it's not yeah. the stylistic stuff; it's the, it's the concepts. But, but finding finding new ways to do new weird tales, which weird yeah. tales were a synthesis of the of of horror and science fiction and fantasy tropes, and playing those against each other so that something you would get something that felt both familiar and utterly alien at the same time. And I was trying to reconvey that, and I did that with 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 Scum of the Earth. I would I would like I am intent on doing more science fiction stuff on a larger scale, uh, in the immediate future. Um, so this was kind of a a, 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 fun palate cleanser. Um,
0: yeah. How long did you gestate this idea? Cause, it, um, not very long, not at, long, long all. at all.
1: Not very long So you long just went all. to the
0: retreat and were like, yeah. what am I going to do? Yeah. Get, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Cool. Exactly. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of a test for myself. Um, I had just finished on America, um, actually at the beginning of last year and on America was the exact opposite in every respect.
0: And we'll get there.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, but let's
0: just close up, uh, Scum of the earth a little bit. And, um, so one of the other things too, there's lots of real hidden, like, you know, one of the things if you, if you all couldn't tell, like Cody knows his genre history and knows the, you know, is a, a book of file, like, like we like to be on this show, and, uh, so there's references in here and, and there's times where you break the fourth wall and you talk sure. right to the science fiction reader. Sure. And there's like a, a line that's, um, God, I know I, I just don't know if I can find it, but where it's basically like you, uh, make the point that, um, this is an alien. Uh, that someone would imagine if they'd read too much Asimov right. and not enough, um, I'm not sure. Was, Ellison. Uh, not enough Ellison. Right? Yeah. 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 And, uh, this was, this was a great part of the book for me. It really made me laugh. Um, you're, you're definitely tongue in cheek with a lot of these parts of the book. But what I think it does is, um, it really rewards the reader who knows the genre. and yeah. I appreciate that. Out of Thanks. Yeah. No, I, I,
1: I wanted to, I experiment with judiciously doing that because I've become, um, as I've gotten more experienced, I've become more and more, uh, concerned with, uh, and determined to find ways to have, have pros do things that film and games and music can't and mm-hmm. that, that, uh, I mean, we're, we're aware that, that, uh, that we're reading, you know, you know, when you, when you hear a story, maybe somebody's reading it to you and it's supposed to sound like they're, like they're, they're reading a writing a journal and, and yet they're describing writing in their journal in such a way that, no, this is, it's like a radio play, yeah, you know, you know, and it, and, and it, and it kind of loses that, loses that reality. Um, when you write a story, I mean, if you're doing it in third person, I mean, what the hell is that? What, what, what is it? How does that exist? How am I supposed to take that as gospel, take anything in that, in that as gospel? And, and so when the author, uh, or, or the narrator, uh, can only Tips a wink to the reader and and says, "I understand why you're here. I am. I I, I I know you understand why I'm here, uh, and 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 what we both hope to get out of this. I, it, it, I mean, of course, that which is understood need not be explained. But but in 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 moments like that, um, you've kind of
0: always done that, even in more subtle ways. I think. Like sure. I, I remember. Moments in I am definitely
1: Union. getting less subtle as I get older. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Perfect Union. I know there's definitely moments where. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by the way, just on um side, is Perfect Union in print right now? No no, oh, no, no, it's not. no, No, oh, no, nope, nope. well, that's too bad. It's yeah. one of my top ten uh, horror novels of all time, people.
1: Yeah, maybe so. at some point in the future, but but due to. A, a lot of recent very seismic events in, in my career that should bode well ultimately in the long run. Uh yeah, my my backlist is kind of in limbo right now. But
0: Yeah. Well, but but
1: but for a good reason, not not like, you know, a dispute reason or anything like that. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, uh yeah, and for those I, I just always um a lot of the ways I find out about Cody books when they're on their way is you'll just randomly mention them to me in conversation or mm-hmm. at conventions or whatever. And uh, Perfect Union was originally pitched to me as, I'm working on a haunted house novel where bees turn you into communists. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and it, that's a lot of, you know... And for So for years, I was like, holy shit, write this book. Yeah. Here's my perfect segue. Yeah, uh, For many years, there was... You, there was talk of a novel that uh, took place on the U.S.-Mexico border that was about an underground city. Mm-hmm. And this book was called America* And mm-hmm. for, I don't know, 15 years, every time I saw you, basically, I'd be like, hey, what's going on with America*?" Yeah. And now I finally have it here in my hands. And I've read it. <laughs> and um, so here's the thing. For 15 mm-hmm. years... Yeah. I thought about this idea, and I every time I, I said, "Cody, I want this book." And after 15 years, you delivered it, and it met all my expectations. Um, now, I gave five stars to Scum to the Earth. Mm-hmm. I b- believe in the five star review of it. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. I loved On America, and, and I firmly it. believe that every person out there listening to this who's who's a dickhead is going to enjoy On America. So. As we continue to have this conversation, I want everybody to go out there and get on Amazon and order themselves a copy of Un America because I firmly believe that if you're a dickhead and you've made it this far, you're going to love this book. So, can you tell me? Can you give the readers a thumbnail of of what Un America is?
1: Well, um, it, it is about uh, it's about a boy, a boy full of hope. <laughs> a boy full of hope of changing the world and the human species to a higher iteration of consciousness with uh, some magic mushrooms that he found in a cave. And, um, and, and, but really it's about, it's about how, um, how change actually happens because right now, you know, we're, we're obviously in, in, in an era where there's all kinds of, uh, terminal changes, uh, that we, and, and things that we don't know how to, how to grasp, don't know how to change, don't, don't even know how to, can't even agree on how to come to grips with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, you, you, everybody, even the president of the United States succumbs to this mythology that there are, uh, these knowledgeable, wiser gray eminences somewhere that figure out that, that understand these things, you know, that, uh, and, and that, and that are going to manage it, you know, somebody somewhere will figure out how to stop that meteor, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and, um, I'm fa- I've always been fascinated by the, the question of the, the auteur, the person, the, the, you know, the, the autochthonist hero who rises up with a bold idea and changes everything versus that notion that, that society and, and our species kind of create, uh, various iterations of these, uh, uh, of these heroes and we use them up like Kleenex whenever we need them. And, and that that's uh, in order to transform ourselves and that, uh, that, that gravitational pull between, between what uh, society might need and what people think is, the, what individuals think is the answer uh, to, uh, to change everything Um it was kind of the mainspring behind it. And it was that, that was kind of the skeleton on which I hung just thousands and thousands of tiny, really horrible ideas for how to, uh, that would probably, you know, uh, make a billion dollars if, if not for, you know, law and common decency and things. And, <laughs> and, and it was, it, it's speculating about, you know, because we're, We're, we're arguing about whether or not to, to, to build a wall right now because there are some people fleeing from, uh, from political and, uh, violence and economic, uh, and, and environmental disasters at home. And, uh, even, you know, everybody, but everybody who's not on an oil company payroll is, is saying that, uh, you know, there are going to be catastrophic, uh, changes and huge uh migrations of human beings such as the modern world has never seen before and uh everybody who's pragmatic you know read hopes to make a dollar in that brave new world is is looking at these scenarios and you have to ask yourself how do they you know how can they conceive of of of, uh of what the market's going to look like and um I think the seed was first placed in my head once when I read an uh, article in TV Guide. I think it was right after the, the day after it had come out. So probably like 84, 85, 86. Um, and in it, they talked about how, um, right around the same time that we aired the day after the Soviet Union had this mini series called America with a K. And, and it was a, uh, this very propagandistic communist uh you know post ideological communist notion of what uh of what america's like and they described it as something between like a like a jungle and a concentration camp where uh, uh you know there's no law there's no regulation but uh but huge corporations victimize people daily and that kind of was a seed in my, in my head that, that kind of first broke ground, uh, when I was living in Los Angeles in 1992 during the LA riots. And, uh, our part of the city was on lockdown, but we were, we were in Culver City, which wasn't a great neighborhood, but it was well behind the lines of where the police had, had said, yeah, you're not going to riot. You can destroy your own neighborhoods, but you're not coming up here. There's equity up here, damn it. And, uh, We'd cruise around on on my scooter, uh, with a video camera, you know, looking for trouble. And, uh, what we saw everywhere were all these, all these people that probably lived under the streets or in sweatshops here and there, uh, all around the city. And that, uh... Probably don't have driver's licenses or uh, or secu- social security cards or green cards or their name on paper, maybe anywhere so far as you know. And they're all wearing Joe Camel and and Marlboro gear. It was at the time when the cigarette companies were doing these promotions and they were giving away every kind of every kind of clothing. And they were they were dancing in the streets for a while because the the city had kind of had kind of disappeared as a uh as an entity uh as as a political entity uh, as an economic entity, and uh all of the regular people were hiding in their houses and and they weren't violent or dangerous or anything. Well, what was fascinating to me was this notion this was America for them. this is what they came here for. They have no idea about how our judicial or legal or political process works, and they don't fucking care. all they know is that they have slightly better chance of of barely making a living and not getting killed than where they were at home. And, and then, and then the cigarette companies give you free clothes. (laughs) Holy shit. This is heaven. And, and so playing with that idea of, of how, you know, the powers that be are going to dope out how we keep the lights on at the market, uh, even as, you know, people are, are, are starting to, to draw a line between themselves and their neighbors for food, um, is, is, is something that was fascinating to me. And also, I try, was trying to kind of riff on a lot of the cyberpunk stuff that I grew up with um you know uh Gibson and and Sterling and Shiner and Mark Laidlaw and John Shirley and 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 so many of those uh, genius writers and and use and and more than i ever did with with lovecraft stuff in any of my lovecraftian fiction i i really did kind of try to experiment with the, the eyeball kicks and the, some of the you know almost dadaistic juxtapositions of things uh that uh that i know the uh, those guys at least the most honest of them uh, admit they they kind of riffed from the beats and and, and william s Burroughs and stuff and um i, I to hear uh, uh, John Shirley started reading it, and he immediately said, yeah, the, this has a very strong marinated in Burroughs vibe, which Ooh, that really did you, my heart good. You um, got John Shirley to read fiction? Yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. yeah. He probably That's won't like, admit this. He'll, he'll deny it right now, but I haven't <laughs> listened to his album either.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this book uh, was conceived during the George W. Bush era,
1: and, and I, well, I first attempted to write it. I mean, I, I, I mean, it was, there was an idea for a place and I didn't know what was going to happen in it. Um, in, in starting in the eighties and the nineties. And I first attempted to start writing it in 2004. And, uh, I had, uh, written a, you know, the first 10,000 words and a treatment, and I took it to uh, World Horror, and I tried pitching it to some, uh, some agents and managers, and they didn't get it at all. I got some really discouraging notes, and I got the feeling that this wasn't a book that I was ready to do yet you know right or wrong what they were saying about it what I took from it was that yeah this i I'm not ready to do this concept with nearly the authority that I need because it should be able to run those people over so that at the very least they'd say please sir no more um but <laughs> but uh, so I, I I put that aside and I work and I did uh, um, uh, perfect union and mm-hmm. then i I did a, a couple of books with skip um, and and so it was something that I wasn't ready to do. When I finally um did tackle it, I was in uh you know, all kinds of weird, dire straits and in a very strange place mentally and physically, you know, Portland. Um and uh I uh I sat down and I, I, I looked at what I'd what I'd written, you know. Uh, 12 years before and i reworked a lot of it and and then jumped right into the book and i did a lot of research and 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 stuff for it but mostly i just sat in a really terrible terribly supportive uh egg chair and wrote on a laptop and for about nine months uh uh, straight to get it done. And, uh, immediately upon finishing it, I realized that I, I ruined the, uh, um, the ACL in my right shoulder. And, uh, so I had like months of agonizing pain and and no sleep and, uh, you know, half-assed, uh, self-physical therapy to, to get my arm back. Well, that sucks, but I have got on um, America to read. So yeah, I'm okay exactly, with that, exactly. So. No, no, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was, it, it was, it was worth it. I usually don't. I'm, I, I usually have. I don't want to say little patience for, but I can't. I can't really commiserate with folks who complain about the writing process itself. For me, even at its hardest, it's it's at least purgative. Um mm-hmm. But uh yeah, this this was a book I paid for in pain more well, than anything um, else I've ever written, or or will ever again. Right? They're all easy from here on out
0: well i i'll tell yeah. you um so this book for for those who um when when you read it you'll see that the book uh satirizes a lot of things religion capitalism especially probably top of the list mm-hmm. but um but one of the things for me because the concept of the book it's it's this underground city where basically anything goes and it's kind of like a um, testing ground for mm-hmm for these drugs, but what, what, what's interesting to me is because what it plays for me is that it kind of plays with the idea of, there's a lot of times where people will say, especially coming from a straight edge perspective, I've heard people say, well, why can't all the the people who do drugs just go in one city and then they can just do whatever they want, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And just yeah. let them like do whatever they want. And it kind of explores this idea of these kind of forced zones yeah. that we have of, um, whether it's classism or whatever, where there are these kind of <coughs> generalization of crime and criminality and um, kind of free-for-all. Sure. And, and so what I really like about that is um, because of what the title, with the title on America, and it really kind of gets to this idea of um, you have this raver character who's trying to get back into the country. Yeah. But then he ends up in this place that's kind of like ideal for him in the sense that it's this this free for all place it's not america but it is like this highly concentrated um, form of the worst kind of places that america creates and hides well sure right. it's, it's everything
1: yeah. well, it's i mean it's it's unacknowledged america it's everything yeah. that we that we desire and want i mean i mean red red state evangelical christians watch the most porn and, yeah. and and account for more than their share of the uh, of abortions and uh and and so you know attempts to lead to to litigate those things and make those things illegal it's to, it's to stop their own people from doing those things uh it, it because they because they recognize they have no self control and uh and so in in on America I'm trying to I mean what I always figured uh. I always figured that, that sooner or later pot would be legal, but the day that pot pots legal across all 50 states is the day the rich people blow blast off for of the dark side of the moon, you know, with all, with all of our good shit. Because I, I always felt that it would be the same kind of thing as when in, in apocalypse now, you know, when all the, the playboy bunnies are doing their show and, and the soldiers and the marines overrun the, the, press barrier, and they're trying to maul the bunnies, and uh, Bill Graham, the promoter has like all these packets of like Panama Red and bags of Coke and bennies and whatever and he's throwing them out of his pockets and the soldiers all start grabbing and fighting over those and he's able to get the bunnies onto the helicopter and get the hell out of there that's kind of what I always thought legalization would be like and it's it, it feels like and I'm, I'm, it's sad to be right about this that human nature seems to be as as we're facing these these terminal questions of, of, of environment and, and population and allocation of resources and stuff like that and it's not just a question of paying A living wage. It's when people are going hungry. You know what the hell are you going to do? Are you just going to have start having robots serve the food and put robot machine guns at the doors to the to the McDonald's? Or you know, are you going to keep paying these people even though you've got to spend a whole lot of money to replace them with robots? How do we deal with these questions? And when i read um more recent works by a lot of my a lot of science fiction writers that were kind of hailed as prophets back in the day um each of them and i think all science fiction almost all science fiction writers do this or they or they tend into fantasy or they go insane and start talking to an alien being that's, that's beaming them all their story ideas uh but you <laughs> you 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 start um Uh, the future catches up with you, basically, and you reach a moment of future shock where, holy crap, the future that I talked about, I, whether it's, whether it's here and I'm right or I could never have predicted this, uh, and I, and, and it blows me away. I mean, did you go to that Kim Stanley Robinson thing? No, it's tonight. Oh, it's tonight. God damn it. Why don't we go to that and then get drunk and then do this? Or I get drunk and do this. <laughs> anyway, uh, it, 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 amazing. I love his three California books, but, yeah, uh, really the, 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 the second one, the one with the, with the automated cars and everything. Mm. Isn't it fascinating how there's automated cars, but there's no internet. There's no car phones. People don't talk to each other while they're in their, in their cars. They don't. Seem to be able to, and and yet you can still do terrorism. There's automated cars and you could do terrorism, but nobody keeps track of it. So it was weird how there was kind of a blind spot or a myopia about, okay, a computer will run all this and computers remember shit and you could do these, you you do these things. And so it's, it's, but, but so many, I mean, like Gibson a, a long time ago, I think in the early 2000s kind of stopped writing sprawl or speculative fiction stuff and just kind of wrote books, you know, like the blue ant books. That were about kind of a juiced up version of now, but yeah. basically it recognized, yeah, the future is now. And it's, and, and, and I, I, I wanted to write a cyberpunk book, but I, I, I felt disingenuous trying to write a uh, predict about what the future is going to be like in 2070. Cause it's going to be road warrior, best well, case scenario. This, Jesus. This is a little bit of a tangent yeah. off of
0: your stuff, but, um, I had this discussion with Shirley when he was talking about updating TransmaniaCon, and I really told him that I didn't think that he should. Like, you know, that thing's
1: but, such a product of its era. Yeah, I don't know if I if I, I wouldn't trust myself to write something that far back.
0: Right, well, certainly not.
1: Not him. Not the author <laughs> of his own work. Anyway, well, but yeah, but, yeah. Now I'm kind of with you.
0: Yeah, but, and one of the reasons why is because I think that it. I think.
1: If that's one where even the hiccups and the weird things, it's like a bug smashing the projector, it's still rad, it's still an artifact and part of a thing. It's yeah, the exactly. Appeal.
0: And I think that the artifact of it is, is, is something that's, that's really, really important. Yes. I wouldn't change a, a thing of TransmaniaCon. Right. Um, and for those of you out there, we're talking about TransmaniaCon by John Shirley, you should read it. It's fucking amazing if you can track it down. Um, but, you know, some of these people, that, like, one of the things that I love about reading, like, a book like The Penultimate Truth is mm-hmm. that, that it's it's showing me a vision of the future conceived of at this time in the past yes makes it so unique and such a weird thing.
1: Yeah. And, and that, that in itself is fascinating. How we conceive of the universe and how our models of the universe are and how they change and how they're promulgated is as fascinating as knowing how the universe actually works.
0: And so with Un America you have a book yeah. that you conceived fifteen years ago. How how has this concept changed mm-hmm. since you first conceived of it or has it not changed much? Have you tried to keep it pure to the way you were thinking of it? It
1: it I didn't really have to fight it. I I think I figured out what the what the narrative was going to be and it was more and this was why I was dreading it. I, I was was realizing okay, I know what the broader arcs of the whole thing are going to be, but what are these individual episodes? What are these things? What are they eating? Where do they go? What do they watch? Uh, All of those things were really the, the, the parts that hampered me. And, um... Trying to uh, because because those are, are are kinds of things you need to be relentlessly re- researching and, and interrogating the world for and you know and looking at all kinds of all kinds of strange new stuff and going if these trends continue and then and um and that was the, the that was that that kind of pure invention was what I, I was kind of shying away from or the the weight of it um. And, uh, there were some stories that came together that, or, or that refused to come together that I had to find. Um, for instance, uh, Jaime's backstory. Um, I didn't, I didn't actually, uh, invent most of that. This his story about how he came to America. There was, there's a a friend of a friend up in Portland, um, who, uh, immigrated, uh, to this country from Cuba, um, by way of, of Camp X-Ray in Panama. Mm-hmm. Um, and had a really harrowing, nightmarish, PTSD-inducing, uh, uh ordeal getting to this country. Uh, it took, like, 18 months from the time that they pulled him off for raft to when they actually said, okay, and gave him his green card and let him in. Mm-hmm. Um... And, uh, and
0: that you wouldn't have had.
1: No, right? and I, yeah, I, 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 I felt like I probably could have come up with something like that, but it would have been kind of disingenuous actually hearing it from the guy and talking to him and showing it to him and go, okay, I'm totally stealing your story. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I know, uh, people are all over the spectrum about that. That, that ethical or aesthetic question is, you know, if you're taking somebody else's story, but we're all taking somebody else's story. If you're, if you're writing horror, almost at some level, it's guaranteed that something, that this actually, some, this or something similar happened to somebody else. Somebody would read this and go, you should be ashamed of yourself. My uncle Morty was just trying to push that goat through that fence. And, and this, th- this is how he's immortalized. This is how he's remembered, you know, and, and, and so you always have to balance that exploitation of, of pain and fear and, and, and possibly taking somebody else's story with, uh, empathy and, mm-hmm. uh, and broadening people's wisdom and understanding of what it's like to be other human beings. And, uh, and, and so sharing their and preserving their story.
0: Well, the best, one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever got was John Shirley told me at the beginning of my federally mandated vacation, um, your, your, uh, your assignment is to listen, you know, yeah, and you know, you're, you have an experience or you have a chance to get these experiences that not not everyone can get. Right. So you, you got to listen. Yeah. And, and, um, so, you know, it's funny because, um, okay. So on America, is this a horror novel? Is this a science fiction novel? Is this a dystopia?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's what I expected to hear, but because yeah. I consider it all those things, and and, mm-hmm. and I think that it works on all those levels, and and um and one of the reasons why, like, I just goddamn it, I was gonna get you in here to talk about an America is because I believe that you know the PKD is all over it. Um, I definitely, as a fan of uh, knowing. Like, especially, um, you know, like, there's this, you know, we were talking about how y- you talk right to the to the reader a lot of times. There's a really mm-hmm. great part, uh, page 206, for those of you, if you eventually get the book, uh, where you basically um, tell the reader that they're a bad machine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think some of these parts were the parts. Well, he's where- talking
1: to you as if you're about to test his new drug. Right. Is, is, is what it, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't have it all in quotes, but it totally, yeah, it does. I mean, it, it would be the, the equivalent of, of, yeah, he is, he is looking at you. Your POV is, is looking at him across the table with this pill in front of you and a glass of water and some, and, and, and some, uh, little river band playing in the background.
0: Well, and the reason why it made me think, of, the reason why Which I, you shouldn't do, <laughs> why I dog eared that page, besides the fact that I thought it was one of the most beautifully written parts of the book. Oh, thank you. Um, is that, um, I think that that's a subtext or that's, I think PKD is like basically telling us that, <laughs> that all the time, mm-hmm. right? You're a bad machine mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. And, and so like when I read that, I, it just, you know, really stuck out to me as, um, and I don't know if I wrote about this in my review, uh, my blog review of, of Un America, but I mean, I didn't write about the bad machine part, but I, it was a part of the book that really spoke to me. And I don't think it's a spoiler. I think it's, it, it's, it's a part that, I, I want to highlight to people that when they read it to look out for it because I just, I just thought it was a really powerful part. And, and for every part that's as powerfully written.
1: There's a turd.
0: Well, no. There's still, it's still Cody Goodfellow's, so yeah. there's still a part yeah. where a guy's really pissed off because he doesn't have maple syrup to eat his human flesh. Yeah. And, and, and so, like, there's still, it's still funny. It's still, it is a very entertaining book for... Those are the
1: kind of extremes you have to go to when you're introducing new characters <laughs> less than 100 pages from the end of a 500-page book. That, uh... Yep. They
0: cannot eat human flesh without maple syrup. God damn it, where's my maple syrup? Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. but... Well,
1: when when Larry from accounting is always taking it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, this, this, that's the thing is to, um... Uh, I'll never forget um, the first time I read uh, your novel, Repo Shark, mm-hmm. and um, I won't give away the ending, but uh, the ending <laughs> is impossible to get out of your mind. It's impossible to think about it without laughing, but it's not like the book is a
1: rip-roaring, like, constant,
0: like, tongue-in-cheek comedy, but... Um, I
1: was kind of trying to do, like, Charles Williford or Elmore Leonard with monsters. Right. Yeah.
0: It's a great book, um, but the way you suck that landing, it's, 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 um, it's pure Cody. And what I think is, and the reason I bring it up is because on America, uh, for, for, for all the books that you've put out and all, mm-hmm. all that you've done. And as your friend, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of you for this book. Thanks. Because, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I waited so long for it. It's the longest I've, I've really waited for a book where, it's like holy shit i want this book to come out other than right. uh stormland john shirley's uh still not released um,
1: <laughs> book is his chinese democracy yeah, yeah his yeah, chinese democracy yeah, democr- yeah right. it's getting up
0: there because right. uh, i i don't want to bug him anymore about it but um because i know it's not entirely his fault but um i really do want to read St- stormland <clears throat> damn it yeah. um but On America is a book that I, I i i really feel i don't know if you feel this way but um I feel like it's putting together. It's checking all the boxes. Kind of, yeah. For, mm-hmm. um, I would say this and Perfect Union are are to me the best examples of of of, of your work. Oh, well, that's, I, I don't this, know.
1: This is the last book I felt like I had to write. I mean, I I, I have things that I that I want to write, and um, uh, this was. This and this one other book, uh, were the, are the two like stone babies I've been carrying around in my head for, for most, in some form or other, for most of my adult life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, this next one, which I'm, I'm trying to fight my way to take, will take even more research, probably be even more of an ordeal. It's probably going to cost me both arms and my dog or something. (laughs) Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm sailing, I'm I'm tacking into that, into that wave. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and then if I come out the other side of it and I survive, I would love nothing more than, than just to be completely swamped and, and ask my, ask myself, okay, well, brain, what do you want to do today? And, and for the first time in, good God, since the first time I broke my brain with acid or, or, or wrote a short story that I could sell, uh, would say, I have no idea whatsoever. Right. <laughs> what well, do you want to do? Yeah. That would be,
0: well, yeah. And this is an important lesson for the writers that are out there listening, and I'm sure there's plenty of them. Uh, one of the, one of the conversations we had about on America many years ago, um, was, was an important conversation for me mm. because we had a whole, at the time I was outlining a, a novel, a horror novel about the Vietnam War, mm. um, and, I was convinced I was the next book I was going to write mm-hmm. and using on America as an example, you basically talked me <laughs> out of writing that book because you basically told me the reasons why you thought you were not ready to write on America. Yeah. And even though, well, I think you may have come out and told me you're not ready. <laughs> you're not ready to write this, this next book, but more you were saying it through the vid, through the lens of your book. hmm. And, uh, I'm still not ready to write that book. um, I, I look at the outline every once in a while and I think about it. Yeah. Uh, someday I will write it. Right. Um, and but it is definitely inspiring to me to see uh, an America come out because. Um, I wasn't trying to badger you all those times that I no, no, asked No, No, no,
1: no, no, yeah. no, no. And it was wonderful well, because it would, it was, n- it was almost never on the front burner, <laughs> but it was always something that was coming up in my mind or something I, I, I would see something in the news or, or, or see something ghastly by the side of the road. And mm-hmm. it would, and it would, and it would turn over in my mind that, that, that's, yeah, this is on America. And, uh, and so it was, it, it was good to be, to be jogged about that. It, it probably did help bring it closer to conclusion
0: well but so. i but i also think that it's an important piece of advice for writers that mm-hmm. don't have to try and force yourself to write the book mm-hmm. that is in your head just if you're not Ready for it? It's better. It's, yeah, it's better to wait and do it at the right time. Right, and um, one of the reasons
1: why I and you'll know. Yeah, you'll know when when suddenly it stops being mysterious because I, uh, the, uh, I I I attacked the first part of this book and it's pretty much as is in uh, in the final text, but beyond that point, I had no idea where to go. I just kept writing here, there be tigers in my own blood all over the page, and uh uh. I, there was a piece of, uh, of of advice or an observation that I, I remember uh, reading from James Elroy, where mm-hmm. he talked about how he spent years. Um, uh, kind of putting his life back together after being a juvenile delinquent and housebreaker and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh, was caddying at, uh, the Bel Air country club and, and he, and, and just reading every hard boiled crime, uh, book and watching every noir film that he could to, in, uh, to work out his vocabulary and create that world in his mind. And he knew the kind of books that he wanted to write, but he knew he wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he had to remind himself of constantly was that, This is just writing. It's just words. You don't have to. It's not like, it's not like you can picture a horse and then think, okay, yeah, if I just picture that horse. Someday I can chisel that horse out of Carrara marble. You know, <laughs> it'll, never, it'll never fucking happen, Pally. But, but if, if, but if, if it's, if it's words, you know, when you're, when you're writing a thing, and, and this is embellishing a lot on what he said, but if you're writing a thing, you're, you're, you're describing the thing with words and the, the thing itself doesn't actually exist. It's not in here. Clans mm-hmm. the Alphane moon is, is, is my, a synthesis of re- of reading the book, your synthesis of reading a book and our memories, and they 'll touch each other and maybe influence each other, but each of us carries that that reality and so it it the thing itself is a thing that only exists in the mind or as a movie or you know. underoos or action figures or whatever but but uh if you if you can conceive of the thing, then you can describe it and what i've told people that are that are frustrated that uh that aren 't ready to do a thing okay. Dial it down, you know, and I'm far from the first person to say this, uh, mm. you know, dial it down to, to what you can describe. Um, I think Samuel Delaney said this, uh, said, uh, recounted telling a, a student this once that, uh, they, they wrote a bunch of airy, arty farty shit that didn't touch on the story. And he was like, okay, what's this story about? And, and, and the student tells him, told him what the story was about. And he goes, okay, so what's your writing? She goes, write down what you just told me because mm-hmm. you figured out a way to convey it. And that's what you're doing in writing. Mm-hmm. Don't get wrapped up in, in the language or something and let yourself get psyched out that it needs to be something really confusing. Uh, maybe you can, you can edit it and embellish it later, but, but just get it down onto the page in some way. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's. It's vital that you exorcise it at some level. And even if it's just, okay, today I wrote a sentence and tomorrow I'll write another sentence and pardon me. The day after that, I'll look at them and see if they, and see if there's, if they're fighting or if one of them killed the other one and won, you know, um, but, uh, it, it, it's, it's not, uh, There is some ineffable factor X that will that that will always keep you you from from will keep it keeps everybody from becoming a potential Stephen King. But you everybody can get better by do just by sitting by sitting and doing and committing to it. And if you can have the idea for the story, sooner or later, you will have the the ability. And the and and the technique and the skill set. If you care about it, if you lie awake, all you have to do is lie awake at night and ruin all your relationships, uh, yeah. and you'll and you'll and you'll you'll have your dream.
0: Well, the, the funny thing is, like the book I'm currently writing, I had a um, I had the a very expanded version of the idea mm-hmm. many years ago, yeah. And I started to sit down to try and write it, but it was like way all over the place. It was yeah. it was. Maybe you have cars.
1: a maybe you have a constellation of stories, me. and
0: and I, I what I did is I just gave up on it, and mm-hmm. I just was like, this book doesn't work. Yeah, I, I guess I was wrong. Yeah, and I'm not going to write it. And right. then, and then as um, it you know I started doing this podcast, mm-hmm. um, that PKD influence um rewired my brain for mm-hmm. the story, and just because um, if I hadn't been doing this podcast, um. I would have never found the solution to, to this book. You know, it was just like one of those weird things. So, um, yeah. Um, well, Cody, uh, um, nice. I really appreciate, uh, the time that you've given us. Uh, uh and I'm sure the listeners are glad that you're, uh, here with us tonight. Uh, Bull Weevil's already
1: closed y'all. That's how much I care. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, uh, I'm just glad you're, uh, you know, we got to catch you while you were in town. Uh, Skype's yeah. fun, but it's cool to have you in the studio too.
1: Absolutely.
0: And, um, just, a uh, last little thing. Um, how, how do, uh,
1: our listeners, uh, find Cody Goodfellow? Uh, well, for the time being, I'm on Facebook, but we just, I'm, I'm kicking the tires on a new author website, codygoodfellow.com. And, uh, that should be up and running by like, by like next week. It's, it's, it's simple. It's optimized for phones. It'll tell you what I'm doing, um, where I'm going to be appearing, uh, and, uh, links to, to interviews and podcasts. It is this fine program, uh, where you can, uh, hear me holler the loud, funny words. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: uh, This podcast probably wouldn't exist without Cody, actually, because, uh, Cody is the reason that, uh, Anthony and I, uh, met each other. So, yeah, yeah, because, um, true story, we met, um, counter protesting the religious freaks at, uh, Comic-Con as, uh, Cthulhu followers. Oh, (laughs) Yeah. And that's how we, uh... (laughs) That's how Anthony and I first met, which we told the story before, but um, but we were both invited by you, so oh. I don't know that we would be sitting here right now doing this podcast because it was definitely Anthony's idea to do this, so, wow. um, yeah, and uh, so, you know, you're a huge part of um, uh, Dickheads Always, so you're always welcome back, and Thanks, I man. appreciate... Um, you taking the time to talk to us about the man himself, and I think uh everyone's gonna really appreciate that. And I really hope that our listeners will check out your work. Um I definitely think Un America um deserves your time, but scum of the earth as well. Uh they're different types of vibes, but both great. Um so on that note, uh keep it paranoid, everybody. Stay paranoid.
1: Cheers.